From The Conversation, this is Speaking With. I'm Justin Bergman, Deputy Politics and Society Editor. On this episode, we're speaking with the investigative journalist David Nywert, author of the new book, Alt America, The Rise of the Radical Right and the Age of Trump. Nywert has spent the past two decades tracking right-wing extremist groups in the United States as a journalist for the Southern Poverty Law Center. His new book follows the rise of this fringe movement and how it gained strength under the Trump presidency and became far more mainstream. If you're interested in more of our coverage of Donald Trump, Professor Kamuta Simpson at Latrobe University closely followed his campaign and first two years of his presidency for the conversation. You can read her work at our website, including her last piece on Trump's pick for the Supreme Court, Brett Kavanaugh. And now, here's our conversation with David Nywert. David, thanks for joining us today here at the Conversation Podcast. I'd love to start off by asking you a bit about the alt-right as far as a definition of who these people are, what this group is. Um, you know, is this sort of linked to the old white supremacists of old that we think of as, you know, when we think about the KKK, um, or has it evolved since then and, and changed for the 21st century? Yeah, I think that actually is exactly what it is. It, in many ways, it's um, a repackaging of old stuff. Uh, the the ideology and the ideas that are uh, circulated within the alt-right are uh, very much standard stuff that we've seen since the 1920s in the eugenics era and the era of white supremacy. Um you know, as what the Ku Klux Klan promoted in the 1920s and 30s is all, you know, that sort of um, belief in white supremacy. Um, but the it's very different in that, I mean, I've been doing this for a long time. Um, and most of the radical right movements that I've covered for most of my career have been very backward looking. You know, it, I was wanting to revive a golden era of times before and that sort of thing. And so typically, the kind of people that they would attract were, you know, in a old, much older demographic. Uh, and this included, you know, I would say the Patriot Militia Movement um, of the 90s and, and beyond was always, its demographic was pretty much guys, you know, in their 40s and 50s. And um, this is very much a youth movement, and it's but it's also uh, predicated really on the internet in so many ways. And in fact, that's really what the alt right is primarily. It's it's a movement that's built out of the internet, um, and it's essentially old white supremacy repackaged for the twenty first century, uh, leveraging technology and social media in very new ways. And their demographic is young white males between the ages of 15 and 30. Uh, and that's who they're aiming for. And it's the, the appeals are really crafted to appeal to that age of, of young men. And um, it's, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a very interesting mix of old and new. And um, they use they use humor in ways that we haven't seen before. They use um, it's very transgressive humor. Uh, it's you know it, which is part of the appeal to these young men. It's it's you know let's, let's be as racist as we want to be <laughs> type right. stuff. You know, and um, 
So it's, you know, and they're using cartoons and they use memes and social media and, and message boards like 4chan and 8chan that are, that are all built around, you know, this culture, this internet culture. And a lot of it comes out of the video gaming world, uh, which is where we actually saw the origins of it. But yeah, the alt-right's kind of an umbrella term for this spectrum of uh, thinking of that uh, runs all the way from, you know, hardcore neo-Nazis um, to people like Lauren Southern and Stephen Molyneux, who are, you know, not as overtly racist and, and bigoted, but yet managed to promote their ideas. Um, in in very interesting ways. I mean, think of Lauren Southern, who was here recently, I gather. And, uh, you know, her big thing right now is promoting this idea of white genocide in South Africa. She's put out a documentary promoting this idea. Well, it, it's utter rubbish that this is happening, but it's definitely something that's been promoted for quite a few years by white nationalists and white supremacists. And she's putting a sort of attempting to put a sort of mainstream gloss on it, but that's where it comes from, and that's what it's about, is promoting white nationalist ideology. Right, and you just mentioned mainstreaming. Like that That's yeah. what I find most interesting, is that what's happened in recent years feels like um, a movement that was long marginalized yeah. in American society now has these mainstream outlets. Um, and I wondered what it, what including Donald Trump. Right. So what role did does Donald Trump and and the mainstream media like Fox News and to an extent Breitbart's not so mainstream, but how what what um, role do these organizations play in helping to give this movement more visibility and more of a voice? Oh, they they definitely normalize it. Uh, I mean, Tucker Carlson on Fox News regularly normalizes this white nationalist ideology by painting it as benign and promoting their ideas and talking points in ways that, you know, strips out the obvious racism, but is geared toward, you know, moving that agenda along. Um, and yeah, Breitbart News does the same thing. Breitbart has kind of an interesting role because it's actually, they their news content is, is sort of what we call alt-light. That is, they, they sort of do the nudging the same way that Tucker Carlson does. But if you go into their comments section, it's just a sewer of overt racism and bigotry, I mean, neo-Nazism. Uh, and they actually approve that and they can, they, they promote that. That's part of their, that's a key part of their community is that, that they sort of play this game where they're, they're, you know, oh, we're just, we're not overtly racist. <laughs> However, all of our readers are <laughs> basically, and they're, they're helping their readers um, become more radicalized as they go along. Yeah. And what about Donald Trump? I mean, his refusal to disavow the, the alt-right on, on several occasions, um, how does that help fuel this growth? And, and I'm, I'm curious about the yeah. growth. Are we seeing really increasing numbers of people joining these movements? And is that easy to track? I, it's actually very hard to track. We don't really have a, a firm handle on how large the movement is. Um, the main thing that we can look at is um, internet traffic numbers. And what we can say is that, you know, their audience is a uh, number in the hundreds of thousands, if not millions. And um, certainly they're participating, hundreds of thousands of people are participating in this. But since it's not, um, you know, 
something that you can actually track membership numbers in the way you could with the old right uh, by actually counting hate groups and then counting their membership. Um, that's not possible anymore. And so the best we can do is kind of a you know thumb and finger in the air um, assessment and guesswork. Uh, and but it is quite large and substantial. Um, Donald Trump's role is really very interesting and key uh, to all this because, you know, the radical right, this stuff is always on the fringe for a very long time. And um, it's been around a long time. And, and typically they couldn't ever, weren't ever cohesive, partly because of the nature of the movement itself. It's full of people and attracts people who are contentious, paranoid, uh, constantly angry, um, and in person, they're just horribly unpleasant people to be around. And so they, uh, and they can't stand to even be around each other for very long. So they're constantly fighting and warring and splitting into factions and engaging in an internecine war, uh, warring, you know. And so one of the, it was part of the reason that, you know, the radical rights never really gained a foothold in the United States to any great extent was that they never had a charismatic figure around who they could all unify and kind of forget their differences, unlike, say, Germany or Italy in the, in the 20s and 30s. Um, but that changed with Donald Trump. Uh, he, you know, very much courted them. He was very much part of their world beginning in, you know, 2011 when he was promoting the birther conspiracy theories and really predicated his whole political career on appealing to this faction. Uh, certainly that was clear, you know, the day he announced uh, his candidacy when he, you know, called Mexicans, uh, Mexican immigrants rapists. So, um, you know, and, and that was what caught the attention of all these radical right folks, really, was that um, that speech, that announcement speech. And when they finally came on board, for sure, was about a month and a half later when he released his immigration plan. And this immigration plan was almost uh, copied, it seemed like, from what we know about white nationalist uh, agenda for immigration in the United States. And it was really amazing to see all of these people, you know, the, the announcement speech got everybody's interest going and they were going, well, let's see how he plays out. And then when he released the immigration plan, they all went, boom, we're, we're there. We're behind this guy. He's our man. And, um, yeah, it was pretty astonishing. So his effect has been to be that singular unifying character who lets them forget about their differences and around under whose banner they can all unify and rally. And, um, and he has had the effect of normalizing it. I mean, the main thing that he actually normalizes more than anything is um, this conspiracist worldview, uh, which is the, you know, it's actually the, the fuel for this fire in many ways. It's the metier for the whole movement. And they are, um, you know, it's, I call it Alt-America. It's a, an alternative universe um, made up of conspiracy theories, alternative facts, and just frankly, right flat-out lies. And that's how um, 
you know, this, this is the world that they live in, and it's been going on since the 1990s. This universe, this alternative universe has been building. And Donald Trump very much was a participant in that universe, beginning, like I say, with his promotion of the birther conspiracy theory. But he's gone along since. You know, he went on Alex Jones' show. Um, he has always uh, been somebody who has been very congenial to the conspiracist worldview because I think he actually is one himself. Yeah, and let's you mentioned Alex Jones. Let's uh, talk about him uh, just because the audience here might not be that familiar with him, but how does he promote this conspiracy kind of mentality, this paranoia? Well, um, Jones has been doing this for a very long time. Uh, if you tune into InfoWars, which is his program, uh, his sort of news operation, as he calls it. Uh, you know, it's nothing but wall-to-wall conspiracy theories. Um, I first became familiar with Jones in the 1990s uh, when I was covering the militia patriot movement. Um, and, you know, this is the early, sort of early origins of this alternative universe uh, was that movement. And, you know, he, um, one of the first and he was doing this radio show out of Texas, and he's still based in Texas. Um, but he was very much a, a minor player for really most of the 90s, but he, he got his start you know, promoting uh, the idea that the government was going to start rounding people up and putting them into concentration camps uh, using black helicopters and that sort of thing. Um one of the very earliest conspiracy theories he promoted was the idea that um, the Oklahoma City bombing was actually a false flag operation. And he got that idea directly from a guy I dealt with personally, and that was uh, John Trockman, the leader of the militia of Montana, who is in many ways the wellspring of a lot of this early conspiracism. And Trockman's still around. He's just not as popular. He's quite elderly now. But um, at any rate, these were, you know, this is where a lot of this stuff originated. And Jones, was, you know, he kept building his audience through the 90s, and then it really took off after 9-11 when he became really the leader of the whole 9-11 um, truther movement in many ways. And uh, then after Obama's election, you know, there was a big separation between mainstream conservatives and this conspiracist element through all the Bush years because, you know, <laughs> the Republicans very much weren't interested in promoting the idea that their president was the, had been part of this <laughs> conspiracy to cause 9-11, which is what Alex Jones promoted. But um, once Bush was out of office and Obama had, was in office, uh, that separation vanished pretty quickly. And we saw all of these, um, you know, very far right uh, conspiracist ideas that really originated with, you know, not just Jones, but the whole milieu around him, uh, moving into the mainstream, uh, mainly through the venue of the Tea Party. Yeah. And people believe a lot of these conspiracy theories. And I, I'm curious if you could talk a little bit about the anxieties that underpin this tendency towards believing in bizarre conspiracy theories that have, you know, as you said, they have no fact and they're, they're not true, um, but people still widely believe them. So what, what, what's going on there? Well, some of it has to do with um, their belief that, you know, that the 
complex world that the media, the mainstream media reports, the very, um, you know, that the world is a, as a complex place is actually, they've come to believe that they are, that this is all a lie and that they're being lied to and that they're feeling manipulated. And a lot of this has to do with, you know, people's sense that, um, the media is not always telling the truth, and frankly, it's not. As we saw during the Iraq War, we were very much lied to about the uh, rationale for engaging in that war. And so people have a lot of natural suspicion. And frankly, it's the result of corporate ownership of most of the media uh, that we have that suspicion, and yet somehow they've managed to turn that back not on the ownership of the media who are responsible for those failures, but rather um, they just um, have decided to sort of reject the whole worldview altogether and, and buy into this idea that their news is being manipulated by a mysterious cabal of conspirators who happen to be all Jewish. And... and and they, you know, uh, see it as, you know, is, you talked about the anxieties that that it sort of is a cover for. And a lot of these anxieties have to do with people's economic positions as well as um, their uncertainty about, you know, racial relations and, uh, and the increase in... Um, in brown faces in America, mainly through immigration. So, you know, they they otherize uh, brown people, particularly uh, Latino immigrants as well as Muslims. And, um, you know, th this is the enemy. This is the other. And that's what they become focused on. Yeah. And, and another disturbing element of this movement that you've talked about and written about is the the rise of the lone wolf violence that has associated with alt-right um, causes and beliefs and things like that. Um, why do you believe this violence is becoming more prevalent in recent years? Well, some of it has to do with the readily, ready availability of guns. I mean, it's kind of gone through the roof. Um, the more the NRA has been in operation, the more open uh, it's been for Americans to buy guns. In fact, there's become it's become like a proof of your manhood that you have a gun in America. Uh, it's it's uh, it's definitely a penis substitute in a lot of regards. But um, yeah, there is um, there's this whole element out there. And I grew up in Southern Idaho. My dad was a gunsmith. I grew up around guns. I don't have a problem with them except. I would never own an AR-15, and I don't think anybody uh, anybody has any real need for one. I mean, you certainly can't use them for hunting, which is what we use guns for, because uh, you'd destroy the meat if you shot them with an AR-15. Um, you know, it's it, it's ludicrous. Uh, but what it actually the reason these people are buying guns is that they're being told by the NRA that the real purpose of the Second Amendment is to prevent the government from controlling them. That, that it's, it's what I call the insurrectionary interpretation of the Second Amendment. It's the belief that, uh, you know, the reason we have guns is to keep the government from being able to enslave us. And so this is why they want an AR-15, because then they can maybe match the firepower of 
government authorities, and of course they can't. Um, you know, even an AR-15 is no use against a tank or a bazooka or missile launchers, right? But these guys will actually argue, well, I, uh, the Second Amendment means that I have the right to a bazooka. Have, I have the right to a, a tank, you know? <laughs> right, right. They do argue that. Yeah. It's crazy. And, and you've spent a lot of time, I, I assume, with these groups when you're researching the book. Um, have you noticed... Um, a more violent streak, tendencies, uh, talk? Um. In the rhetoric. Mm. Yeah, the, the rhetoric in particular uh, definitely has been an increase. And, you know, it's it's aimed at primarily liberals, uh, white liberals. Uh, they openly talk about civil war now, and they openly talk about killing liberals in ways that they never did before and eliminating them uh, through fair means or foul. And this is actually what's driving uh, the motivation for a lot of these so-called free speech rallies that I've been covering on the West Coast, uh, which actually turn into riots. And, you know, they like to say, well, we're just going to these cities to, you know, use our free speech. But what they're actually doing when they go to these cities is using highly inflammatory speech that's designed to enrage people and get them to throw rocks at them. You know, uh, telling them that we, we should be pushing immigrants' faces into the pavement, that sort of thing. And, uh, you know, Muslims have no rights, and we should take their right, you know, any rights they have away. You know, this, this stuff is designed to anger people, especially in a liberal community like Portland or Seattle or Berkeley. And um, yet they seem to think that, you know, there shouldn't be any consequences for that kind of ugly speech. And you know what? The First Amendment doesn't protect you from consequences. It really doesn't. And in the research of the book, I'm curious, you know, just to, to wrap up, I'd love to hear what it was like to spend time, you know, in these in these, in these these groups and within this movement. And, um, and if you could just talk a little bit about the research process. How much time did you spend out in these small town places? Well, most of my, I mean, part of it has to do with the fact that I have family in Idaho and Montana and eastern Washington, and so I go visit them and go hang out in the bars or, you know, talk to people down at the local cafe. And, you know, you just keep your ear to the ground, and it, it, it is easy for me to talk to them because I grew up around them and, you know, know how to talk to them. Part of the key is understanding that I mean, a lot of people, a lot of journalists get kind of freaked out doing this stuff because um, all they can hear is the rhetoric. And um, it's important to understand that these people are just human beings, too. You know, they don't come with horns and pitchforks. Uh, they're just, they came to these beliefs through, you know, very human means and for very human reasons. I mean, it's often horribly mistaken and oftentimes just absurdly insane. But um, nonetheless, they are, you know, they're just ordinary people. And so, you know, I've learned how to, you know, talk to them like ordinary person. You try to be, at least on the surface, empathetic to them, even if you're going, holy shit, <laughs> what am I listening to? In your own mind, you're thinking that. Uh, but that's the key, you know, getting them to talk. Just start, you know, the more they talk, the more they will, you know, because a lot of times they're trying to recruit you, right? And that's usually sort of how I present myself as, oh, I'm listening to you. 
And honestly, that's what a lot of people want is just somebody to listen to them. So that's, you know, that's how I generally go about it. I haven't um, in recent years um, spent as much time, in the last two years, I haven't done as much, you know, on the ground type research like that because I've been devoting most of my energy to covering these uh, riots, which is unfortunate. Cause, but I, when I go to them, I always hang out on the alt-right side and I talk to the people in that crowd so I can understand what their motivations are. Um, and the riots, you, you say, you mean Charlottesville? Well, I haven't been to, I wasn't at Charlottesville. Okay. Uh, no, because I'm on the West Coast. Oh, right. SPLC, who, the Southern Poverty Law Center for whom I work, um, was, you know, they're out there in Alabama and they sent their own crew up to Charlottesville. Um, but they have me going to the things on the West Coast. So I was at Berkeley, and there have been multiple events in Portland and Seattle and Olympia as well. So, um, yeah, I just go to where these events are that they are organizing that are fundamentally, you know, these events really aren't uh, free speech events because these guys actually don't have any respect for free speech. They certainly don't respect the free speech rights of the other side. They just want to shut that other side up, too. And they, by, But they do so by claiming that the other side wants to shut them up, right? Right, right. <laughs> and just wrapping up, I'd love to go back to Trump real quickly. So mm-hmm. you, w- w- with his, um, you know, the way he tweets, the way he talks, you know, makes public statements that, mm-hmm. in, that inflame a lot of tensions among groups, um, you know, goes to rallies and gets people to chant, lock her up. And, uh-huh. you know, do you feel that this that this rhetoric that he's espousing is also helping to inflame the tensions even further and, and you know, could incite, you know, does it worry you that it, that yeah. it could lead to violence? Oh, yeah. Violence? No, I think I think it's pretty clear that that's what he's doing. You know, the, the whole QAnon conspiracy theory that has uh, cropped up in recent months, which is sort of a meta, <laughs> a unified field theory of, consp- of conspiracism, um, it, it's a bizarre thing, but you see these people showing up at his rallies, and he's clearly encouraging this. Um, it's been a concern since during the campaign. We saw him doing this. Uh, I was part of a project. We did a piece for um, uh, Mother Jones that we published in October of 2016 that kind of got ignored because of the timing of it. But we created a database of all of his various connections to the radical right, both from the radical right and their endorsements of him, as well as his, um, his the moves he may, has been making to uh, encourage them. And this includes, you know, sending out tweets of himself as Pepe. Uh, it includes him retweeting white genocide hashtags and, and fake black crime statistics. And, and the fake black crime statistics is really key, or is a, is a really beautiful example of this. Those fake crime statistics that he retweeted were, in fact, lies that were generated by white nationalists who've been selling this idea for really decades that black people are responsible for most of the murders of white people in America, right? Um, and this dates back to a guy named Jared Taylor, a famous white nationalist who put out this pamphlet called The Color of Crime, I think, in 99. 
and has been recirculated on the white nationalist right for a very long time. Well, the possibly the most uh, significant uh, player actor on those on that belief system was a young man named Dylan Roof, who walked into church in Charleston and the day after Donald Trump announced his candidacy and killed nine people, nine black people, because he believed um, in he had been absorbing all of this stuff from the color of crime, from the Council of Conservative Citizens, uh, and from the neo-Nazi website, The Daily Stormer, into believing that, you know, black people were a problem and he wanted to start a race war to fight back. And I, I think that's really a crystal clear example of the real danger that we're seeing here. And honestly, I mean, we just had another mass shooting in, in Florida today. Um, and I will pretty much guarantee you that it will turn out that this young man was a conspiracy theorist as well who had bought into these things because that's what we're seeing with all these mass shootings. Uh, Parkland, um, the one in Texas, uh, the, the, the shooting in October of last year in Las Vegas. These are all people who have gone down the conspiracy theory rabbit hole in part, in the real danger of a lot of this conspiracism is not only does it give people a, a real sense of belief that, you know, the world is bad and needs to be fixed and we need to take violent action to correct it, but it generally has this really powerfully unhinging effect in terms of your personal life. Other people cease to be human beings. They're just pawns in the conspiracy. You're, it's very easy to dehumanize other people. So the man in Las Vegas who murdered 58 people from the Mandalay Bay was, you know, he was shooting them because he wanted America to wake up. My niece was in that crowd. She barely escaped with her life. So, yeah, uh, it, it has really profound effects. Wow. So, David, well, th thank you so much for your time today. It's a really fascinating subject. Thank um, you for having me. Appreciate it. This has been the Speaking With podcast at The Conversation. I'm Justin Bergman. Oh,